You're listening to a Redux edition of Consider This on KZYX. My name is Stuart Campbell, and I'm back after a a five-and-a-half-year hiatus on the air, and I welcome you to the program. You can call us in the studio later on in the program at 707-895-2448, or you can send your comments or questions at any time to dj at kzyx.org. Since I've been out of this business for a little while, I'll do my best to keep an eye on phones and email later in the program. I've come back to the airways to have a conversation with documentary filmmaker Meg Smaker, whose film, The Unredacted, will be showing at the Mendocino College Center Theater on Friday, September 29th at 6.30 p.m. That's one week from tomorrow. This screening is a benefit for the KZYX Ukiah Studio Building Fund. I'll just say that I've been working on bringing this film to Ukiah since last April, and this is actually my first time having a direct conversation with Meg. Let's see, I've got to, yeah, there we go. Bring up Meg so that I can hear her. And I'm really happy to share this conversation and the film with KZYX listeners. Meg Smaker, welcome to the program. It's good to see you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a, been a long time coming. I'm very <laughs> excited. It's finally, finally coming to fruition. Yeah, me too. Uh, so I'd just like to start off by asking you to give us a brief biographical sketch of your working life and how you became a documentary filmmaker. I, I know a lot about that, but our listeners certainly don't. Uh, brief is going to be hard. Um, <laughs> I will give you the best cliff note version I can possibly um, manage. Uh, I wasn't always a, a filmmaker. I used to be a firefighter, and I loved it and thought I'd always be one. Um, and then uh, 9-11 happened, and um, that kind of shifted my whole paradigm. Um that day generated a lot of questions for me, questions that weren't being answered uh, on mainstream media. So a little bit over not, uh, six months after 9-11, I traveled to Afghanistan on my own to try to find those answers for myself. And I was uh, immediately humbled by my ignorance of the world. I'm not sure if you remember what you were like when you were in your early 20s, but uh, I think I, at that point I thought I knew everything and then quickly, quickly discovered I did not. Um, so yeah, so that sent me on this kind of lifelong journey to educate myself. Um, and so, uh, I went back to the States and worked as a firefighter for a little bit longer, but then eventually, um, quit my job and moved to the Middle East. Um, I wound up living in Yemen for five years where I studied Arabic and Islamic culture and, um, the experience there, um, pretty much made me realize what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Um, when I was living in Yemen, the things that I was experiencing, the stories that I was hearing, I didn't see represented anywhere in mainstream media. And I wanted to tell those stories and I, cause I was lucky enough to have that kind of in-person experience and live there for such a long time. And so when I returned to the U S um, I switched to careers and went back to school and uh, yeah, Went back to school and got um, went to graduate school and got a graduate degree in documentary filmmaking, and uh, that's the the very quickest I can describe my trajectory <laughs> into becoming a filmmaker. Well, it's uh, there's a, I know that there's an awful lot more behind that, and just upping and moving to Afghanistan and then to Yemen is, I think, not something most people would even consider doing. But you jumped for it. Yeah. Well, the reason I did that is because, um, and you know. I think that my dad always said that there's only three types of people in the world. 
those that when you hit them, they hit you right back. Those when you hit them, they run away. And those when you hit them, they ask, why'd you hit me? And I've always been in that third camp. And so right after 9-11, I was really trying to answer these questions. And so I'd read, I would read ferociously the news and books, and then I'd watch the, new, um, the news and, and other things on TV. And I quickly realized that a lot of the things that I was reading directly contradicted what I was seeing in the news. So, for example, I would read that in Islam, um, you know, it's prohibited to kill an innocent person. And then on the news, I'd watch the correspondents say that Islam is a violent religion and, and they just kill innocent people. And so what I realized after a while is both of those sources of information were I would that I was receiving was through someone else's filter. And the only way that I could see at that point to really get to the truth was to remove the filter. And so that's why I left and went to Afghanistan, because I, there was so much information and a lot of times similar to today where it's really hard to decipher the truth, um, especially in today's landscape. And a lot of the times it's put through other people's filters with agendas. And I think for me anyway, um, the best way to kind of understand that is with like hands on experience and for lack of a better word, boots on the ground. So, yeah. Right. Um, so I want to get right into talking about the film because that's what we're here to talk about. And we're, as I mentioned in the intro, we're showing your film, The Unredacted. It's showing at the Mendocino College Theater, uh, a week from tomorrow, 6.30. It's a benefit for KZYX, uh, Ukiah Building Fund. So, so that you know what that means is we're currently located in a little town called Philo and Ukiah is the main city in Mendocino County. And for a long time, a lot of people associated with the radio station have wanted to move the main studio over to Ukiah. And we now have a building there. We're starting to work on it. Um, like you at one point, we're trying to raise the money to do that. And so that's yeah. the point here is, uh, or it's one of the points of doing this is to raise some money in that effort. So, um, well, I think, yeah, I, I'm a huge, huge supporter of local journalism because I think in the last, decade or two, it's taken quite a big hit in terms of funding for local journalism and radios and, and newspapers. And so I think anything you can do to keep your local news station alive is like t fully in support of that. Yeah, perfect. So um, let's introduce the film. Let's talk about the film, like uh, what the film's about, how you came to find out about it. Um, you know, start getting into some of the details of what prompted you to make this film. You, you had done, I think, one or two films before shorts, and this is your yeah, first full length. Yeah. 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 So I did a, a, quite a few short documentaries before this, but this was my first feature length documentary. Um, and uh, it's about the world's first rehabilitation center for terrorists located in Saudi Arabia. Um, it took me about six years to make. Uh, it follows a group of men who were held in Guantanamo for 15 years and then sent to Saudi Arabia to go through this rehabilitation program before they're um, put out into society, back into society. 15 and years, they, by the way, where they were never charged with never anything charged or convicted, or convicted yeah. of any crimes. Yeah. Um, I, you know, <laughs> almost everyone <laughs> right. was never charged or convicted of any <laughs> right. crimes. Um, and so, yeah, so basically I started following them when they came to Saudi Arabia and I followed them for uh, a year and a half of the rehab program. And then after when they got out, um, a year and a half when they tried to, you know, get jobs, find wives and start families. 
And so it's a, basically just a story of these three men's journeys during this very pivotal time in their life. And um, I think the way that I try to describe it to people um, is there's this very famous Dostoevsky quote that says, the easiest thing in the world is to denounce the evildoer. The most difficult thing in the world is to try to understand him. And that's what this film tries to do. It just, it doesn't tell you what to think. There's no agenda here. It's basically just trying to understand these men on a human level, their motivations, um, their involvement, and who they are as people. Um, so, yeah. And uh, I think that it's... The, the What I can compare it to is when I was in high school, I remember uh, studying World War II, and my teenage brain just could not wrap my mind around six million people being murdered. And it was just something that cognitively I couldn't grasp until I read Anne Frank. And that was one person's story, one person's journey, and it was that human connection, that that micro story that helped me better understand the macro um, event. And it's very similar to this. So we've been fighting the war on terror for over two decades. Um, hundreds of thousands of people have died. And I just can't wrap my brain around this, but this is, this is not about the macro thing. It's about three guys and kind of the ripple effects on their lives of this conflict. And so hopefully by understanding them, we can better understand the bigger picture. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a little bit what the story is about. How I came to find out about it um, is actually when I was living in Yemen. Um, I, when I was there, I was working as a firefighting instructor. So I taught Yemeni men how to fight fire. And one day on the fire grounds, I was eavesdropping over a conversation between a couple of my cadets where they were talking about a terrorist attack that had just happened in Saudi Arabia. And according to them, half the men who were caught were Yemeni and the other half were Saudi. And they said that the Saudis were, or the Yemenis were tortured and then killed. And, but the Saudis were sent to something they referred to as Jihad Rehab, which was this G rehabilitation center that the Saudis had created back then. Um, and so I just, you know, I wasn't a filmmaker at the time, I wasn't a journalist, but that idea that it was just so weird that the most conservative country in the world was running some really strange progressive rehab program for, for terrorists, and it just didn't make sense to me. And it always kind of stuck in the back of my mind, and I just thought that was very fascinating and wondered about it. And so when it came time to, when I became a filmmaker, I still thought about it quite often. And then, um, yeah, and then I decided to make it my first feature-length documentary. And um, it took me a year to get access, uh, three years of filming, and two years of editing, and and uh, the final products. But you're hopefully going to see in a week. That's right. So, so I've, I'm going to bring up a question came from a, a friend of mine. Um, and just see what your response is. His sense of, sense of things is that jihadis, terrorism, that whole war on terror has kind of gone out of public consciousness recently. It's not the top of the agenda. There are a lot of other things that have seemingly moved to the top. And so his question is, why would people care about this? Why is it still relevant? Why, ultimately, the whole thing, point of this uh, discussion today is, why would our listeners, why would people in this county want to come see this film? I think that's a great question, actually. Um, and so, like I said before, um, the film really doesn't tell you what to think. It kind of leaves it up to you. It's very open-ended at the end of the film. And we've done a bunch of screenings so far, and what I've found really interesting is how different people 
identify with the film. So, for example, um, I was very surprised by a large number of vets and military folks who've seen combat really love this film. Um, and the reason for that is, or how it's described to me, is that, you know, this one guy said to me, he said, you know, I would never admit this to anyone, but I miss war, not the fighting, mm. not the killing, not the shooting, but I miss the sense of purpose, the sense of brotherhood and camaraderie. And since I've gotten back to the States, I felt quite lost because I really haven't found that anywhere and I haven't seen that anywhere. And I hadn't seen that anywhere until I saw your film. And when I watched your film, I watched these men and their relationship to each other. I realized that I had more in common with the men that I was sent to kill than the people who sent me there in the first place. And he told me that it was really healing for him to watch this film because for 20 years he always wondered who were these men and why did they do what they did and he said for him he felt it, that it was quite healing and kind of like allowed him to to kind of shift gears in a way in terms of his perspective on a, on a different um, aspect um, we did a screening in the uh, San Quentin prison and the inmates there were really really passionate about the film and after we had the screening one guy stood up and he said, you know, I, I feel like I watched a film about my own life. And these guys aren't going to Guantanamo. They're not, you know, you know, part of Al-Qaeda, but the whole, like, incarceration and being separated from society and that kind of thing. And then um, I had someone come to a screening who actually had family members die in 9-11. And they came up to me after the screening and they said, you know, I was very hesitant to come here because I didn't think that I was ready to see this. And she's like, but I'm so glad I did because I didn't realize how much I needed to hear at least one person from the other side saying what I did was wrong and I regret it. And she's like, I, I feel, I, she, I, I said, I, she said, I didn't realize how cathartic that was going to be. And so I don't want to tell the audience like this is what you're going to get out of it. But I definitely know that we've been talking about these men for 20 years, but we've never actually talked with them. And this is the audience first opportunity to have that, not to have a filter of some, you know, expert or, or news correspondent tell you who these men are. It's an opportunity for the audience to kind of sit down with them and have them tell you themselves. And I think that when we're talking about conflict, when we're talking about extremism, it's not just um, kind of ciphered into this one thing of terrorism. You know, we have a lot of extremists that show up in different iterations in our own society today and in American society across the world. And I think that it's really important. Like I talked to someone who actually um, used to be in the Westboro Baptist church. Hmm. And she said, like, I watched that film and I couldn't believe how many similarities that these men were going through that I went through being part of the Westboro Baptist church. And I think that that's the great thing about a story that is even though you're talking about something very different there's all these universal human themes that are kind of spread throughout the movie and i think that you know it's just been really interesting to me to see so many different groups from so many different walks of life getting very different things about it and it's kind of like i think a lot of people are used to documentaries that have an angle and tell you what to think and in doing so i think that narrows the not just the audience but it narrows the the experience of the audience and the conversation afterwards and I think because this film is is open-ended and really doesn't do that intentionally, it allows for the conversations afterwards to be more nuanced, more deep, and more honest, to be, to be, to be fair. 
So yeah. Plus yeah. I'll be there and I'm I'm loads of fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, two things come to mind to say about this. Uh, we showed the film to a small group of the students at the college in the recording arts and technology program. They're the ones that are actually going to be producing it that night. So they're going to be busy doing all kinds of stuff. So you were gracious enough to give them a link so that they could take a look at it. And I asked Rodney Crisanti, who's the uh, faculty member in charge of that program, to ask them what they thought of it afterwards and to record some of those comments. And I remember one of them, uh, one of the students was talking about how, you know, after 9-11, he, like probably most everybody, and along with what you're saying, just thought, oh, these are terrorists, they hate Americans, they just want to kill us, and he had absolutely no relationship to them. But seeing this film really humanized them. He saw that they were people, that when they got involved in this, they were quite young and susceptible to kind of the temptations of the young and the convincing of older adults. And it just really opened his eyes about who these people were and, and made them real people. And he found ways to connect what they were talking about to his own life. I think he was saying he's a single father. And as some of these men were saying, they just want a wife and a family. And, and he related to it like, you know, I'd love to have a wife and have my daughter have a mother and have us be a family. And so he really found a way to connect to them. And I think that's some of the impact of the film as well. Yeah, I think that for a very long time in the U.S., we've had this like national narrative about these men saying that they're all bloodthirsty psychopaths and they're all yeah. they just want to kill us. And the problem with that is, is no matter what side of the spectrum you're on, um, if your goal is to reduce terrorism, and you don't know who these men are, you're operating on false impressions and the strategies and tactics that you use to combat terrorism then are flawed. And so the starting point should always be, I think, uh, as I was making this film, um, I, I just kept on being reminded of the story my dad told me when I was younger about uh, starfish, of all things. Hmm. He said that there was a fishing village in Northern California that had a problem with invasive starfish and one day all the fishermen got together and they wanted to say all right we're going to get rid of this problem once and for all and we're going to kill all the starfish so they collected them all up cut them up into three four five pieces thinking they were dead <laughs> they threw those pieces back into the ocean not knowing that starfish regenerate so there was right. one starfish before now there's five the starfish population exploded and just devastated the local fishing economy the moral of the story being, when you try to fix a problem you do not understand, you usually make it worse. The day after 9-11, um, most experts put the number of Al-Qaeda members around 400. Um, a little bit before the pandemic, those same experts put the number of Al-Qaeda members, including affiliate groups, at over 100,000. So basically, we've starfished the shit up Middle East for the last 20 <laughs> decades. <laughs> or sorry, two decades, 20 years. Um, yeah, and I think that it's imperative to always start from a place of understanding and that way you're better informed on how to kind of respond to something um i think that to what to your, to your point what that what you're talking about is one of the reasons why there's four characters in the film is because i interviewed over 150 of these guys and after doing after talking to so many of them i began to see a pattern and they would usually not all because there's always exception but they would usually fall into one of four categories as to why they join these groups 
And um, the first one, I think, which we're all familiar with is the cause, right? Someone who thinks it's their religious duty. But the other three have absolutely nothing to do with religion. Um, so the second one is economic necessity because it does pay. Like you get sometimes a house, a car, a dowry for a wife. Um, and so that's one of the reasons. Uh, the third reason is um, peer pressure. Their brothers are in this, their fathers are in this, their uncles are in this, their friends are in this. And, and, then, and then because of that, they fall into this. And the last one, um, and this is more for the younger guys, is sense of adventure. Uh, so one of the characters in, this, in the film, he's like, I was 19, I've never left my home vi village, and this guy offered me a free ticket to go to Afghanistan and shoot rockets. Like, why wouldn't I do that? <laughs> and so these four causes, you know, the, uh, the cause, economic necessity, sense of adventure, and peer pressure, also started to resonate with me a little bit because I have a lot of friends, because I come from like working class, I have a lot of friends in the military. And I started to see a lot of similarities between this, the motivations there as well. Like I have a lot of friends who joined the military right after 9-11. That's the cause. Um, college and university in this country is ex really expensive. And a lot of people go into the military to help pay for that. That's economic necessity. Um, you know, and I have friends who come from military families. And, and that's, you know, what, what the family does. Again, peer pressure. Or for lack of a better word. And the last one, I, I don't know if you've seen any... Uh, advertisements for like the military, the Marines, but it's like, you know, come see the world, have this adventure, you know, sense of adventure, the last one. So after talking to all these men, I realized that it was never about good and evil, it was about time and circumstance. And I think that's also why the film resonated so much with some of the inmates at San Quentin, because this guy who joined a gang at 16, maybe if he was in the Yemen, he would have joined Al Qaeda at 16. So I think that like, what's really interesting is even though you have um, a lot of the complexities around the film. It kind of just com comes down to just humans being humans and having very similar wants and needs out of life. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a Redux episode of Consider This on KZYX. I'm your host, Stuart Campbell, and my guest is documentary filmmaker Meg Smaker. Meg has produced the film The Unredacted, which will be showing at Mendocino College on Friday, September 29th at 6.30 p.m., as a benefit for the KZYX Ukiah Studio Building Fund. Tickets are available at all the local usual outlets and eventbrite.com. You can also check it out on the KZYX Facebook page, which is just KZYX Mendocino. So um, let me say something about, you know, so I first heard about this film and first heard about you on Sam Harris's podcast, which I think a whole lot of people did. Back when I was doing the radio uh, program, I interviewed Sam for his book, Waking Up. And ever since, when he got into the doing the podcasting full-time, I've pretty much followed him. I, I don't listen to every show, um, but I do listen to a lot of them. And I heard about it and listened to that. Um, it was a rather long episode. It's one of the longest ones I think he's ever produced. Yeah. <laughs> well, funny backstory in that. We actually talked for over five hours. Oh, my gosh. And originally, he's like, I, yeah, I cut it down to four hours, 50 minutes. And I was like, Sam, not even my parents would listen to me five hours. Like, you got to cut that down. No one's going to listen to some no-name filmmaker no one's ever heard of for that long. So, yeah, he cut it down to a bit over three. Um, yeah. yeah, it was. he was very gracious. And I um, am really, really thankful that he gave me kind of a platform and a space to tell my story, which was very helpful because, um, you know, and the reason that so the film a little backstory the film when i finished it uh 
uh, the way that you put out an independent film in this day and age um, is you first submit it to film festivals and that puts it on the radar of like big buyers like, you know, HBO and CNN and Netflix. And so we applied to a bunch of film festivals and we got into all of them. Uh, we got into South by Southwest, Toronto International Film Festival and Sundance and a bunch of others. And um, we actually premiered the, fil- the film at Sundance. Um, and then a lot of stuff happened at Sundance and the film essentially became blacklisted. Um, and I, that, and then basically just evaporated into the ether. And about nine months later, um, it, and it was pretty much dead in the water. And then about nine months later, there was a very intrepid reporter for the New York Times, who's this Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist called Michael Powell. Um, I think he's at the Atlantic now. And um, he did this like four or five months long deep dive into this and then wrote an investigation into this and then wrote a story that appeared on the front page of the New York Times, um, pretty much vindicating the film. And then I think um, and then after that, uh, I went on Sam Harris and then and then you heard about me. And now here here we are (laughs) trying to get the film out slowly, but surely letting people see the film for themselves and make up their own mind. Yeah, and if anybody that that whole um, what it was was a cancellation, really, in in our modern times. And if anybody wants, we're not going to talk about that here. But if somebody wants to know about that, your interview with Sam goes uh, deeply into that. And if anybody wants access to that, I can uh, get them a link for it. They can just contact me, and I'll give my contact information at the end. When I heard it on Sam, and Sam is somebody that, having interviewed him and read a bunch of his books, I, I want to raise another issue. I, he's somebody that, uh, in these times, I can trust to be honest, to tell the truth. And so the fact that he brought you on immediately gave me some trust in you and in, in what he was talking about. And so I was moved at the time to make a small donation. I'm a retired guy at this point. So I am. Oh, I appreciate it. it was, <laughs> honestly, it was it was really humbling because what you have to understand is for the, that first, like the movie premiered and then was blacklisted slash canceled. And then for those nine months, it, I just received nothing but hate and mm. and ire from it seemed like the entire world. So when the New York Times piece dropped and then the Sam Harris episode went out and Sam was generous enough to put it up without a paywall and people heard about the story, I received this onslaught of really positive messages that honestly kind of saved me in a way. Like there was this one guy who, because what happened when the New York Times piece dropped, I had a bunch of people reach out. Well, two things happened. But a bunch of people reach out and they said, um, I read your story in the New York Times and oh my God, the same thing happened to me. And these were journalists and filmmakers and illustrators and animators. And I, up until that point, I had no idea how far and why this kind of, you know, bullying and like blacklisting had had become because I only heard about famous people. Um, but these were all people at either the nascent stage of their career or their mid-career and I, their work and them had just evaporated into the ether. And the second kind of message that I got was, you know, we registered in the New York Times and we'd love to help. How can we help? Do you have a GoFundMe? And so I was like, I don't, but maybe I should make one. And then, um, yeah, so I made one and we raised about $3,000, which is probably enough to get a poster made, but not enough to put it in theaters. Right. Um, and then I went on the Sam Harris podcast and, and when he dropped that episode, that went kind of viral. And 
people from all over the globe heard that and sent in really kind messages and, and, and donations. And I just remember this one guy who said, you know, I listened to your episode, your podcast, uh, Sam Harris ep- podcast uh, on my UPS route. And, you know, it just reminded me when I was in high school and I just got bullied all the time and, and I don't have much, but here's five bucks and you give them hell. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people like that. And it was really like, I don't come from money. So when a stranger reaches out and takes the time out of their day to send you a kind note and, and five, $10, like it really means a lot to me because I know that in today's world, what's just so hard to make it financially that these people like from the kindness of their heart just reached out to a complete stranger that they that they'd never even met so for me it was i think for nine months i lost my faith in humanity but seeing some of the things people wrote kind of restored it so yeah and you know and it's it's a film that i'm very proud of and being able to bring it to places like you know all over the u.s and and next week in your in your, in your hometown and have this discussions face to face um, as someone who makes films, like that's what you want. You don't want to make something and have no one ever see it. So that was a really hard thing about working on this project for over half a decade was getting it into the world's biggest film festival and then having it blacklisted and no one else got to see it. So that was hard, but I'm really excited about next week's screening and, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. So am I. And, um, I'll just say too that. So I, I made a small donation, and then last April, um, I know it had on your page, you know, if you want to help us get this out, and then it just occurred to me, well, heck, we could do that here. <laughs> and um, uh, that I, I tend to kind of live my life sometimes by those kinds of callings or inspirations, and so then I told some friends, particularly a couple of friends, Rodney Grisanti at the college, the uh, technology guy there, um, recording and technology guy, and he was all, all for it. We've done a couple things in the past, and then a friend of mine, John Azaro, you may have seen his name in some of the emails, and John is a good guy to have in your foxhole with you, and, and he agreed to, to work with me on it. And then I was thinking about this recently, Meg, and I have to say that, so, you know, I was a philosophy professor, but there are two things that I have learn to guide my life by. And one is I think that communication and specifically communicating across differences is really fundamental to life. And I saw that in you and in the film in spades. And the other thing was, is living a life with integrity. And that too, I saw in the interview with Sam and in the quality of the film. It's an amazing, amazing film. Well done, really moving. And so that's how I got into it. And that's kind of what's kept me going on this since, since April. I've had a couple of hurdles and bumps along the road. And, but that's really uh, between you and me, that is what has been motivating and inspiring me about bringing this here. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say, and it means a lot. I feel like, I don't know, I, I I think that when I first made the went out to make this film and then meeting these men and hearing their stories and realizing that I'd never heard their side before, their perspective. Um, I'm not saying I agree with it, but right. I think that it was so important for me to hear that and how much it shifted the way that I viewed not just these men, but the entire war and terror and, and whatnot. And I think that to your point in today's world where 
it seems to be more polarized than ever and where people are in their camps and refusing to talk to the other side i think having films like this where you can have an ex-firefighter sit down with an ex-al-qaeda member <laughs> and have a conversation i think there's hope for the rest of us um i also feel like to your point in terms of integrity when i finished the film um finished editing i, I remember I remember we were color correcting. It was the last. It was the last part before we had to um, turn the film to Sundance. And I remember sitting there with one of the crew members, and the credits started to roll, and it was the last color correction check. And I just turned to him and I said, "That's it. Like, I got nothing left in the tank. That's that's. It. I can't do better than that." <laughs> I, was just, I was very proud of it, and I think that if it was a film that I was just happy about, or you know, thought it was good or it was like, you know, important, but like, all right, I don't think I would have fought for a year and a half for it. But because I feel that this particular film and the story that it tells is not just important, but has a real impact on the viewers, I think it's worth fighting for and it's worth sticking to the truth and however complex and nuanced and contradictory that can be sometimes. And yeah, I mean, I think I'm really proud of it. And I think that anyone who watches it or most people who watch it, not everyone, because no one bets a thousand. Right. <laughs> most people who watch it, um, like I get, I get, I get emails from people who saw the film like months ago and they email me like, I'm still thinking about that film. <laughs> like I'm still thinking about Ali and it's, you know, it's a story that sticks with you. Um, so yeah, I think the reason why I fought for it for as hard as I did is because I, I believed in it and I was proud of it and I thought it was important story that that needed to be told especially 20 years on from the war on terror and that's when the film premiered it, it literally came out 20 years after 9-11 um and i think that if this film maybe had come out in 2005 or 2008 i don't think the we could have been having this discussion i think now to your point before about you know why should we watch this film now since we're not really that's not in the zeitgeist right now i think that this is the time that we should be talking about this when we're not at that point of, of rage and we when we do have kind of the capacity to sit down and have a conversation um rationally and logically and compassionately right one of the people that i like uh, who, who talks about communication specifically uh, he titles a book called conversation his name's last name zeldon theodore i think is his name and um he talks about conversation as something more than is normal in our current zeitgeist. He says, the kind of, I'll, I'll just read this quote, the kind of conversation I'm interested in is one which you start with a willingness to emerge a slightly different person. It's always an experiment whose results are never guaranteed. It involves risk. It's an adventure in which we agree to cook the world together and make it taste less bitter. And I've always like liked that. it. Yeah, it's great. And it, man, is it something that we need right now. And I think this is one of the universal themes that you mentioned earlier, that this film communicates that. It, it shows a way to um, appreciate, understand people who could not seem more different. Yeah. Uh, and yet the film does provide a really compassionate human look at these people and I think opens up that possibility across the whole spectrum. It's one particular set of men in a particular horrible set of circumstances, but it is that universal theme of 
communicating with we, with each other, understanding one another, appreciating one another. And I, and I think if people come to the film with kind of that in mind, to be open to listen to it and to get something out of it, they will, because it's there. Yeah, I think it was really funny. I think that there it's something unique about this film, and I think it kind of lands in in today's world where we're arguing about facts and politics and all other stuff, you can argue about facts, you can argue about politics, but you can't really argue with someone's story, their personal story. And that's all the film is, is you're just watching these guys' stories unfold and their emotional journeys over three years. And I think that that, that aspect of it is, I think, what makes the film so strong and why it resonates with so many different people, because when you're at the end of the day when you're able to i had one guy who um was a hardcore conservative and trump supporter and he came to one of our test screenings really early on and because the film doesn't tell you what to think because the film doesn't say you're wrong you're right it just it's just there at the very end of it i was really surprised the credit starts to roll and he goes you know what i've just never thought about it from their perspective before and even though that doesn't sound like a big like deal i think in today's world just being able to for you know an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes, put yourself in someone else's shoe, shoes, shoes. <laughs> um, I think that helps broaden your perspective and your understanding of the world. And you might not agree with them and you probably won't, but at least you understand them. And that's kind of the starting point for having these conversations. Because if we go both go in our own camps and I plant your flag and you plant my, or I plant my flag and you plant your flag, we're just yelling in the wind. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, stories, in my opinion, stories are the most powerful things in the world. They shape the way we view the world, the people we vote for, the the perspective we have. And if we're only listening to one kind of story, then we're kind of missing out on a lot of it. And I think one person asked me, you know, because you look at my other films, you know, I did film on like P Smalley Pirates and, and meth dealers. And like, why do you, you know, focus on these kind of topics? And for me, it was really, it was really easy. It was a in the documentary world, there is a loads of documentaries about victims, uh, victims of genocide and poverty, war, but there is barely any that are about the perpetrators. And in order to understand something, you got to like understand both sides of the coin. And if you're just the way I describe it is I like to make films from the left side of the boat. So imagine you're on a boat and you know, you're going whale watching and someone on the right side of the boat yells whale and you have, you know, hundreds of people run to the right side of the boat and they're <laughs> taking thousands of pictures. But they're even though all the pictures are from different cameras, they're all the same image. I like to hang out on the left side of the boat. Maybe I don't see anything, but or maybe I see like an orca shagging a mermaid. Who knows? <laughs> and I think that those stories from the other side of the coin the like the, the the people that we think are the evildoers i think that that those are the stories i gravitate to, to because they're the most the least understood and i think that it's imperative to understand like dostoevsky said you know the hardest thing in the world is to understand the evildoer but i also think it's that's what makes it that much more important if you're just joining us, you're listening to a Redux episode of Consider This on KZYX. I'm your host, Stuart Campbell, and my guest is documentary filmmaker Meg Smaker. Meg has produced the film The Unredacted, 
which will be showing at Mendocino College Center Theater on Friday the 29th. That's just a week from tomorrow at 6.30. It's a benefit for the KZYX Ukiah Building Fund. Tickets are available at all the local usual outlets and eventbrite.com. I'll be opening up uh, the phone lines here for listener call-ins pretty quickly. So if you've got a question for Meg or anything you'd like to ask her, I'd ask you to be kind of succinct about it so we can get as many people as, as possible. But we'll be taking calls uh, very shortly here. Um, and the screen's been followed by an in-person Q&A. Exactly. That's yeah, exactly, I'll be, I'll be there. exactly I'll be there what I was going to say. <laughs> if, if you I have had any questions... Or concerns, or just want to yell at me, I'll be there in person. So it's, yeah, we'll hope to see you there anyway. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Meg's uh, gracious enough, she's coming with the film, and we're going to do a QA for listeners of this radio station. That QA will be moderated by our KZYX news director, Sarah Reith. She's mostly going to just moderate and kind of keep the cues going. so if you've, if you've got a question, give us a call at 895-2448. Um, Meg will hear it and she'll be happy to answer. Um, let me see. I'll say, uh, just as a kind of fun side note, I was, I know you were a firefighter and I've talked to several firefighters that I know. And I was talking to one in particular and telling him your story about how you felt and what happened uh, the morning of 9-11. And as I was relating your story about coming into the room and the guys are watching the TV and you're telling them to quiet it down because the other shift is trying yeah. to sleep, he says, that was me. He was doing exactly <laughs> the same thing. Um, so I'm hoping that we'll get a few firefighters here and, and maybe you can relate to some of them. And I thought found it really interesting, your comments about that all around the world firefighters have kind of this sense of community and even though you do come from very different cultures you were talking to firefighters in afghanistan and teaching fire pakistan okay yeah pakistan and and And, teaching them in yemen yeah in in yemen that there is um you had to work on it a little bit because you're a woman (laughs) in a middle east but you know there's a sense of community and a sense of uh being willing and able to listen to one another and there's kind of a code of truth and being honest particularly about the job and so yeah i think that's and just the kind of firefighter sense of maybe this is an over simplistic characterization but where you know most people they see a fire they run the other direction you all run in that direction with training and understanding of what you need to do and being careful yeah. about it but uh, it seems to me a little bit like that's a theme of your life. Like you're running into the Middle East in the heart of this yeah. kind of. T- so anyway, yeah, like it's, everyone has different things that kind of cause them anxiety. I have no problem sitting down with like pirates or terrorists or, or <laughs> arms dealers, but every every tax season, I have a a little panic attack and, and get a little overwhelmed with all the all the numbers and stuff. So everyone just is wired differently. But yeah, I think that what's interesting about firefighting and I think one of the reasons why it's such a unique job is because you part of your job is you're showing up to someone's house or place of work when it's like their most probably the most traumatic point in their life and uh, their child's been hurt someone has died their house is burning down with all the possessions that they've had you know for for decades and so when you kind of go through that day in and day out it's a very unique experience that most people don't understand and when you meet other firefighters there's kind of just this like i don't know there's a camaraderie that's not even spoken because i feel like you it's it's such a unique experience that you have that kind of shared understanding and um 
yeah and there's definitely culture of duty and sacrifice and honor and and loyalty and and honesty when it comes to definitely when it comes to the job like guys would lie about how many women they slept with but they would never lie about doing an equipment check because that would put someone's lives in danger so i think that um i really uh i love that job and i really really the guys that i worked with were, were like family to me yeah so while we're waiting to see if anybody wants to call in and ask you any questions, again, the phone number is 707-895-2448. You've managed to show the film around the world now this year, um, uh, quite a number of places, I think London, Australia, maybe New Zealand, and, New Zealand, yeah. and, and a number of places here in the United States. I'd like you to just share a little bit about how that's gone, What's what's changed, what you've learned, what the experience of... You've already mentioned a few particular cases, but um, anything else you'd like to say about this experience of now finally getting it out there? Yeah, I think for me, being able to have have the film like just on my hard drive for nine months and no one see it, and then being able to bring it to Australia and London and, or the UK and, um, and New Zealand, I think that it was really not just... Um, I think it was just an amazing experience for me, but also my my team and my crew. So I didn't make this by myself. I had we had animators that we worked with, we had sound guys and cinematographers, and they all put their you know blood, sweat, and tears into this as well. And one of the great things after getting the film out there is those people who've seen it have reached out to some of the crew um, and just kind of said, you know, I saw the film. It was amazing. The animation was just stunning and it made me cry. It made me laugh. And I think that for me as the director of the film, that's been really gratifying that at least not what they should have gotten originally in terms of the, the accolades, but at least they're getting some of the well-deserved kind of praise that they, that they, Earned just doing this incredibly daunting project. And another thing that's been really interesting is going to London. We had really, really diverse audiences in there. We had, you know, people who were in the military, people who were from Muslim organizations, and people who were journalists. And it was really interesting to see the conversations that happened after the film during the Q&As. So many people came up to me and said, this was such a breath of fresh air because I haven't been able to have a conversation like this in years because there was it was a nuanced conversation with a lot of different perspectives. When you're having someone who, you know, is the leader of uh, a Muslim organization representation group in the same theater as someone who used to, you know, be a Guantanamo a detainee interrogator, having a civil conversation, you just don't mm. see that in today's world. But but creating that space where you can have those different perspectives and they can engage with each other constructively was really refreshing. And it was really enjoyable for me as well, because a lot of the things that people saw in the film, I had never even thought about before. And so it was really educational for me to see this kind of rock shock test that the film came, became with these different groups and, and people. And I think that what's been really great is you have a lot of places that the film has played where they're dealing with immigration problems or they're dealing with their own kind of extremism and it, it might not be Islamic extremism. It might be just right-wing extremism where it sparks conversations that are really, are just, just not happening, unfortunately, uh, in mainstream media where we're all shot in each other. So I think that that was one of the biggest benefits. And 
I also, it kind of just restored my faith in, in humans to be able to do that. I, it just, it feels like when we watch the news, we're incapable of, of having this conversation anymore. And then you realize, oh no, real people can still do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we, are, we are capable of sitting down and having these conversations and disagreeing and, and listening and learning and growing in a civilized way. So yeah, I think that that was one of the big ones. Um, but I'm, I'm very excited to bring the film to Northern California because that's where I'm from. I was born and raised in Northern California and um, we haven't played it anywhere here yet. It's been kind of hard to get theaters to agree to play the film. Um, and uh, so I'm really excited to be able to screen it there next week because that's, that's another point. The only place you can see this film in the entire world was is in Ukiah next week. Right. So. And I've been billing it as the Northern California premiere. <laughs> it is, it is, and it's true. I mean, if you don't count San Quentin, which, you know, was not okay. open screening to the public. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I think that it's, I don't know, it, you can't ask for, if you, if you write books or articles or make movies um, or, or any kind of, kind of storyteller, you can't ask for more than making something. And after that, people just continue to think about it. And yeah. they reach out. And um, I literally just heard from some of the guys in the film uh, like a week ago, two weeks ago. Uh, and uh, it was really interesting to see, like, I hope that one day when this film gets gets out in the world in a big way, hopefully go, goes online, that many more people can hear these guys' stories and, and kind of um, broaden their understanding of the world. And, and yeah, I, I don't, I've never had a screening where it went, horribly bad so i think that was that's always been a good everyone was very trepidatious to to screen the film in the beginning because they're like oh no are we going to get picketed are we going to get like canceled too but we've always had really positive experiences kind of everywhere we've been um it was and it's been hard to to get into theaters so for example it took us three months just to find one small indie theater in london that would agree to play the film and um we sent it out to all these different theaters and they just didn't even watch it. And then this one guy said, okay, send me a link and I'll watch it, but I'm probably not going to program it. And he watched it and he emailed me right away and he goes, this is amazing. Yeah. Bring it on over. And so we did. And again, I'm going to interrupt small- you one second because oh, we do have a caller calling in and I want to give okay. them a chance to. Hi, oh, you're on the air with Meg's maker. Go ahead. What's your question? Hi, Stu. This is John Azaro. I'm in the foxhole while you're at the studio. And <laughs> okay. I, I wanted to ask Meg about uh, how she got access to Gitmo, to Guantanamo, the prison. That was uh, amazing to see the prisoners even there. I th- we didn't, yeah, we didn't film in Guantanamo. So the, the, the footage in the film from Guantanamo was archival footage. Um, the access that I was talking about was referring to getting access to the rehabilitation center in Saudi Arabia. That took a year. Um, but we didn't film right. in, in Guantanamo because all of our guys had been released by then. So we just filmed, sure. we just filmed with them in, in, in Saudi Arabia. But yeah, it's very I hard get to get, <laughs> very hard to get access to, to Guantanamo as well. Uh, but it, it comes off in the film uh, so that you see that as a that, that was a good aspect. I've been lucky enough to see it twice, once at the college and once with the screening with Stuart. And uh, and I still think about it. And I brought a filmmaker last time, and she said I couldn't go to sleep. I thought about it all night. Uh, it's uh, very timely, and I just thank you so much for doing it. And I'm looking forward to having so many people here who've heard about it get to see it in person. So I uh, look forward to meeting you next Friday. Yeah, I'm really, really excited about it. Thanks, John. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye-bye.
Yeah. A lot of people, uh, it's really interesting. A lot of people, it was funny when we first uh, got into Sundance, one of the guys who um, was our PR guy, he said, you know, I've, I've watched every single film at Sundance and this is the one film I just can't stop thinking about. So it's, uh, it's definitely sticks with you for, for a while, but yeah. We have another caller. Let's, oh, not, not there actually. <laughs> but, <laughs> we lost, we lost, we lost him. <laughs> oh, now we got a caller again. So here we go. Hi there, you're on the air. For, you have a question for Meg? Yes, I do. Go ahead. Okay. Um, thank. Yes, I do. Thank you. I think you um, have you have to turn off your radio because we have a seven second delay on the broadcast, okay. and and it can confuse you if you're listening to both. Okay. All right. I did. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Bonnie, and I'm from the L.A. area, and I'm up here in, uh, actually, in Navarro, California, right down the street from Philo. My question is, are you going to have that documentary presentation down in the L.A. area, like maybe one of the colleges like Long Beach State or uh, UCLA or USC, your documentary? Yeah. I mean, I was, I, we, we've done a bunch of showings in L.A., but they've mostly been in theaters. We haven't really been to a university there yet, but we'd love to. Um, I think that okay. in October, we're going to be played a couple of universities as well. Um, we're going to Boston University. I think one of the things that a lot of the professors have said is this is a great case study, not just for journalists or filmmakers or people or storytellers, uh -huh. because it's really interesting because you read articles that were written, you know, Right, right when it was blacklisted, you read articles then that came out nine months later, and then you watch the film, and you kind of are able to see both sides of the story and then make up your own mind. And I think it's a really interesting case study for that. But I also think that I really like showing it to university students because there's a lot in the film that's quite relevant in terms of storytelling today and how mm -hmm. sometimes uh, we can let our own unconscious bias get in, in the way of it. Like before I start any story, I always, I always, or any project, I always ask myself a couple of questions. The first one is like, okay, what do I believe? And the second one is, well, why do I believe that? And the third one is like, where, where did that come from? Where did the information that caused me to believe that come from? And I think that if I hadn't done that before I started this project, I think it would be a very, very different film. And so in terms of university students and journalism and storytelling, I think it's a great, um, a great way to kind of have those kind of conversations. Uh, hopefully you can make it to the screening. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, my final question is, is at any time did you feel uncomfortable? I mean, I, I, I'm not pigeonholing a, a woman, but at any time did you feel uncomfortable at all when you were in Yemen? I mean, I don't um, know if, if I could do that personally, go live in another country like Yemen, or, or did, you, did you ever feel threatened at all? As a woman uh, over there, threatened in Yemen? No, um, I, and and uncomfortable in the beginning only because you know I had you cannot I don't I don't think you can possibly find two cultures that are more different than the Yemeni culture and the, and the uh, California <laughs> culture. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so there was a bit of an adjustment, and I think that when I initially moved to Yemen, the first six months were quite hard for me. Um, I think mm -hmm. because. I constantly was trying to engage with Yemen from an American perspective. And then finally I learned like, oh, when in Rome, do it as the Romans do. And once I kind of like let let that take over, it was a lot easier. And in terms of feeling threatened, I think that, um, listen, the way that I describe places like Yemen and Saudi Arabia and other places that I've been that are perceived as quite um, dangerous is this, is Donnie, imagine 
you knew nothing about the United States. You didn't know where it was on a map. You didn't know who the president was. You'd never seen an American movie. The only thing that you knew about America is what you read in the New York Times about the rapes and the muggings and the robberies. You would think uh-huh. Ma- America was like Mad Max on crack. And it was like so dangerous about the school shootings and everything. And I think that that's kind of similar to Yemen to where what you see in the news is these little blips of like violence that happens, but it's not, but on your normal everyday person, that's not their entire life. It's just like us where they Hello? have like kids and weddings and things like that. Hello? And so are we going to, oh. oh, maybe we lost her. Oh, Go ahead. Go ahead and make finish off. Yeah. I'm just saying that like, it's, um, I think that per- there's, there's the perception and, and the reality. And if you've never traveled over there or don't have any exposure for, to that culture at all, you're going to form those opinions based on where you get your information. And most of that is through mainstream media, which, you know, has a business model of producing very sensationalized, violent uh, news pieces, which not that they're not, not wrong, but that's just not the full story. Like we talked about before the coin, it's just one, one side of it, but there's a whole different side of it that's ignored. If that makes any sense. Getting down to the end here, Meg, so let me just make my closing remarks and then turn it over to you. Uh, in closing, if anybody has any questions about the screening of the film, they can contact me through my Facebook page, just Stuart Campbell, S-T-U-A-R-T, or by email at scamp8, that's S-C-A-M-P-8 at yahoo.com. Uh, you can go to Meg's film website, it's jihadrehab.com. I certainly encourage you to attend the screening and support KZYX's Ukiah Studio Building Fund. And Meg, we've got literally about 45 seconds before we get cut off for the next NPR program. So I'd like to ask you anything in closing that you'd like to say. Um, I just want to say that I'm really excited to come up there and show the film because I think one of the reasons why is going to places like L.A. and New York to screen a film is pretty much what our, my industry normally does but i love showing the pl- the film in places where my industry usually ignores it like san quentin like or ukiah you know, or ukiah <laughs> <laughs> and because the audiences there are so different and they're so much more engaging and curious and i'm just really looking forward to meeting the people there and having those discussions and Great. yeah i'm very excited thanks we're looking forward to seeing you too thanks very much for joining us today thank you mm-hmm. bye bye mm-hmm.